0: In the fall of 1976, something happened that sent shockwaves through Edina East High School in Edina, Minnesota. It happened at the annual homecoming court ceremony, the crown coronation of the new king and queen for the senior class of 1977. So you have to picture it here. There was nine guys on the homecoming court lined up this way nine girls on the homecoming court lined up this way. And last year's queen had been invited back to coronate the next king, who would then crown the next queen. So this queen came back and she had the crown in her hands and she walked back and forth among the guys she faked here she faked here she faked putting it on Steve Pepper's head and then she faked putting it on Gordon Hampton's head a clear favorite since they were captains of the hockey team and then she walked all the way down and she placed it on the head of one of the most unlikely people in the entire history of Edine East Your working boy pastor Matt Woodley <laughs> It was my head she put it on. And everybody and all the guys on this row look down and go, Woodley? And all the girls look down this way and they go, Woodley? And I'm going, Woodley? Really? It was. I was a dark horse. But see, those guys didn't know how to carry the underclassmen like I did, because everybody votes. They treated them like dirt, and I was always nice to them. So I swept 9th, 10th, and 11th grade and probably didn't get hardly any votes in the senior (laughs) class. But that's the way it goes. Every vote counts. So now this unlikely series of events ushered me into not 15, not 30, but about 45 minutes of fame. Um, I got to crown the next queen, Kathy Wright whom I had a secret crush on for at least a year. Uh, That weekend, I got to ride in a Cadillac convertible with Kathy at my side, my queen, um, and in front of the entire crowd at the football game, and then I got to wave with Kathy like this to everybody. I got to say, it still feels good thinking about it, that unlikely fame that I had You know, I would say that we want this, don't we? This feeling like we matter, we're significant, we count. Well, there's a word for this experience in the Bible. It's a really important word in the Bible. We don't use it a lot, but it's the word glory. We don't go around telling each other that word a lot, but it's a really important word in the Bible. It's a really important word in the Gospel of John, where we just heard the Gospel reading for this morning. It occurs almost 30 times in the Gospel of John. In the Bible, the word glory means literally means fatness. It means weightiness. It means that something matters. It means that something counts. It's usually applied to God, but it's also talked about in terms of human beings. It means that we're significant. Now, I would venture to say that none of us outgrow the need for a sense of significance, a sense of glory. We are glory hungry people. And you, when you get into your 70s and 80s and 90s, it doesn't lessen. You especially want to know your life matters. It, it counted for something. It's significant. We all want this glory. So I could probably summarize this entire message this morning in two sentences. You got glory? or You got glory hunger? Meet Jesus at the cross. Now that may not be the answer you were looking for. Meet Jesus at the cross? Crucifixion? That's where I'm going to find glory? And, And yes, you're going to find not just a puddle of glory, because most of us just sort of go around from like puddle, puddle of glory to puddle of glory, trying to please people, trying to get awards, trying to get next promotion, trying to get praise from people. Those might be good things, but they're puddles. And Jesus is going to tell us in this passage there's an ocean of glory. But it may not be found where you think. Um, I invite you to pull out your bulletin this morning if you want to follow along, or if you have your Bible, you can pull that out. You can even pull out your Bible on your smartphone if you have that. So um, It begins in verse 20, Gospel of John chapter 12, verse 20, but I'm just going to back up. It's not in your bulletin, but I'm going to back up to the previous story, because this story actually makes sense if we understand the context. It begins in verse 12. At what we call the triumphal entry. Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And people went nuts with praise for Jesus. They're waving palm branches. They're throwing down their cloaks in front of him. They're giving him glory. They're giving him praise. They think he's the next Messiah. And they think of Messiah as somebody that's going to charge. and Somebody's going to bring them into this new reign of glory. And suffering free life. And political freedom. And even Jesus' enemies see this and they go, the whole world is going after him. He's, he's a rock star. We've got to stop this guy. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 20. And so some Greeks come to Jesus' disciples and they say, we want to see Jesus. Now, I take it that they're very impressed with what they saw. They're very impressed. I would say that, like, like us, these guys are glory-hungry people. And they want in on the action. And so... They come to Jesus, or they want to come to Jesus. They want to get an audience. The disciples come and say, hey, these Greek guys want to see you. And that's where Jesus says in verse 23. Notice what he says in verse 23. So you got the context. Verse 23, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It doesn't really address what the Greeks were seeking, does it? Now, the phrase, the hour, is used nine times in the Gospel of John. And four times before this, Jesus uses the phrase, the hour, and he says, the hour has not yet come. 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 Now, he says, the hour has come. It's here. And the hour, almost every time it's used in the Gospel of John, Jesus is referring to his death. He's referring to the hour is the time I'm going to die on a cross. So he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then in verse 24, he goes on to say... Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, a lot of times Christians read the Bible and they apply apply that to themselves. But Jesus is saying, first of all, this applies to me. This is about me. This is about my life. I'm like the seed that's going to go into the ground. I'm going to die on the cross. But through that, there's going to be glory through that. Many people are going to be saved. Many people are going to come to know the love of Christ. So... That's not the answer the Greeks were expecting. And then not the answer we would expect as glory-hungry people. That's not the kind of glory we were looking for. Um, think of it this way. Five years ago, I was uh, on the Pacific Ocean near Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. And uh, an older Spanish woman came up to me excitedly, and she was speaking in Spanish. She was pointing off to something that I couldn't quite see what she was pointing to. And then finally I saw off in the distance... There's this incredible whale, floating around in the ocean and doing whale-like things, you know that whales do. And I thought, wow, that's glorious. Last January, I was in Ireland with my brother, and uh, we went and visited the Cliffs of Moher on the west coast of Ireland. Google it sometime if you want to see some pictures. It's incredible. It's awesome. I thought that's glorious. If you want to go to Morton Arboretum this spring, you can see a grove of birch trees. They'll be budding, and you'll say, that's glorious. And yet Jesus is saying, all that glorious stuff, let me tell you when I'm really going to show my glory, my ocean of glory. It's going to be at the cross. It's going to be the hour when I die for the human race. Now, how is The cross, more glorious than the Pacific Ocean, or a grove of birch trees, or the cliffs of moor. How does that happen? Well, in this text, we see two things at the cross coming together. Kind of take it almost like the, the two pieces of wood on the cross, they come together. And in the center of that are two things that come together. First, judgment for sin, God's Perfect holiness. And secondly, God's perfect love come together. And we don't like to think about a God of judgment. That's very difficult for many of us to think of that. But think of like a, a judge in, in, in Chicago who hears cases all the time when people are clearly guilty. Clearly guilty, but the judge just keeps saying, Yeah. I know you murdered somebody, I know it was fraud, I know it was drunken driving, I know it was vehicular manslaughter, but, hey, I'm giving you a pass, okay? We wouldn't respect a judge like that. We wouldn't respect that kind of justice. We have an innate sense that justice is a real thing. I mean, I don't know about you, but I couldn't respect a God who had no sense of justice, who just let everything slide by, who didn't care. But Judgment happens at the cross. Look at what Jesus said in verse 31. He says this, Now is the judgment of this world. At the cross, God is going to judge sin. He's going to judge Satan, but he's also going to judge our sin. Our sin is going to be fully exposed. It's going to be brought into the light. It's going to be shown for what it is, the ugliness of what it is, the horror of what it is. Verse 27, Jesus also said this. As he faces the cross, as he looks to the cross, he says, Now is my soul troubled. You know, in all four gospel readings, Jesus, as he approaches his death, he just about falls apart. Now, we know people in history who have faced death, and they seem to do okay. They seem to bear it, like, better than Jesus why was Jesus, what was he looking at? What was he seeing? Well, he was seeing, first of all, the horror of our sin, all the sin of the human race, all the cruelty, all the malice, all the gossip, all the ugliness, all the ways we spurn and use God's good gifts and then fail to give thanks, all the ways that we use people, all the hatred, all the racism, all the prejudice. All the violence, all of it. He was seeing all of that because he was going to bear that on the cross. But he was also seeing something else. He was seeing that as he bore that sin, he was going to experience separation from God the Father. God the Son, God the Father existed from all eternity in a relationship of perfect love. That's what the Bible teaches, that was what Christians believe. And so, God the Father pours out his love on the Son, and the Son pours back love to the Father, and the Spirit pours back love, and it's all this trinity of love. That's what we mean when we say God is love. And there's never been a separation between the members of the Trinity. And then Jesus thinks about bearing our sin, bearing the sin that we had, and he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He experiences separation from God the Father, for the first time, and the only time, in all eternity. Now, it's like this. If somebody comes up to me, if one of you comes up to me, maybe one of you I've never met before, and you say, it was a horrible sermon. I just didn't like that at all. I never want to speak to you again the rest of my life. And then you stomp away. I would go, oh, that kind of hurt, but, you know, I'm going to lunch, okay? If my four kids came to me, en masse, as a group, and said, Dad, we hate you. We never want to have anything to do with you for the rest of our lives, okay? See you later, Dad. Sayonara. We're out of here. Now that would hurt. That would devastate me. And if I knew that meeting was coming, and that's the message that they were going to give, and I would be separated from them, I, I just, the horror. I don't know how I would deal with that. You see, the longer the love, the deeper the love, the greater the torment and pain when there's separation. And again, Jesus, God the Son, God the Father, together from all eternity, and Jesus is bearing our sin. Because as we just prayed, it was too heavy for us to bear. Did you hear that in the prayer of confession? It's too heavy for us to bear. Our sin is too heavy for us. So what happens? Jesus, God the Son, takes it. He takes it upon himself. He bears our sin. And he's separated from God the Father. That's where how love and justice come together at the cross. Notice what else Jesus says in verse 32. He says, and when I'm lifted up from the earth, that's when I die on the cross. When I'm lifted up from the earth, that's another way of saying when I'm crucified. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. You know, the cross looks the opposite of glory. When a seed falls into the ground, it looks the opposite of glory. It's dying. It's getting buried. It's getting covered with dirt. It's going dark. It looks ugly. It looks like death. And it is death. And Jesus is saying, yet through that, something glorious is going to happen. I'm going to draw all people to myself. It's like, it's like a magnet, like one of those big, you know, horseshoe magnets And just imagine the filings, the shavings, all being drawn to that magnet. Jesus is saying, my cross is going to have that kind of power. Does that mean everybody in the world is going to become a Christian and be saved? No, probably not. Otherwise, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. But I think it's saying this, that when we really understand what happened at the cross, when we really understand that our sin was exposed and judged and born by Christ, when we really understand that we were loved in spite of all of our ugliness and sin, that we were still loved, that we were pursued, that we were accepted, that we were embraced, that we were chosen, when we really get that, it begins to melt our hearts, and we are drawn to Him. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you are a follower of Jesus not because you accepted Jesus, although you did. You were drawn to Jesus because you were, or you, you became a Christian because you were drawn to him. You were drawn to him. You were drawn to him in baptism. You were drawn to him later in your life. And you keep being drawn to him. That's a Christian is somebody that keeps being drawn back to Jesus. Every time we celebrate the Eucharist, we're being drawn back to Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus today and you think, man, I don't know about those Christians. They're always like trying to take over the country and they are they're, uh, put a lot of pressure on me and they're manipulative and they've done the crusades and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, yeah, Christians have done some bad things. But that's not the way of Jesus. So if that's ever happened to you on behalf of my little piece of the church, I apologize. Because Jesus says people have to be drawn to him. They have to be attracted to him. So fully, we are fully known and fully loved at the cross. Fully known, fully loved. Now, what difference does this make to us? Well, Jesus said there's a pattern in the cross, that the life of Jesus is our life now as his followers. Notice verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, let's just look at that. What did Jesus mean? You've got to hate your life. You're thinking, maybe you're thinking you're a Christian. You're not a follower of Jesus. And you go, I don't hate my life. I mean, I have problems, but I don't hate my life. So in order to be a really good Christian, I have to walk around and go, I really hate my life. Hey, good. You're growing closer to Jesus. Good. Is that what that means? Well, it could mean two things. This is where just careful study of the Bible really helps, you know. First of all, Jesus was a Hebrew. He was a Jew. Sometimes Jews talk this way. Sometimes they still talk this way. It's called hyperbole. It's called something to get your attention. You gotta hate your life. Means you really have to distance yourself from that old way of life that before you met Christ. Another thing Jesus could have meant was there's two ways that the word Uh, world is used in the gospel of john one is the good world god so loved the world and the other is the bad world the world that's in rebellion against god the other-centered self-seeking dog-eat-dog just look out for yourself kind of world that we all seem to just so easily slip into jesus is saying your life in that world you got to hate that life you want to hate it to get rid of it because you're hungry for something better You're hungry for true glory. And then Jesus goes on to say, in verse 26, he says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, that is an amazing promise. I don't know if you got that. Because we think of worship is all about us honoring God, right? Which it is. But somehow, in this life of the triune God... There's mutual honoring going on, and that honoring spills out to us. We praise God, we honor Him, but God the Father, when we come to Christ, when we follow Him, He honors us, which is another way, I think, of saying that God gives us glory. He gives us the glory. He gives it to us not because our lives are so perfect or we've achieved it. He gives it to us as a gift. He gives us His glory. Now, how do we get this glory? How do we get this into our lives? You know, I talked about the puddles, how most of us just have like little puddles of glory. And Jesus offers us an ocean of glory. How do we get it? Well, if you've been traveling with us at Church of the Resurrection, if you haven't been, I'll tell you where we've been. We start every Lenten season with Ash Wednesday. And every Lenten season, we get ashes on our forehead. And as the ashes are placed on our forehead, we hear these words, repent and believe the gospel. It's part of our yearly cycle as people at Church of the Resurrection, part of our journey with Jesus. We hear the words repent and believe the gospel. So in this sort of what we're talking about here, what does it mean to repent? Well, repent means we identify those things in our life that we are trying to go to over and over and over again in order to get glory. They're the little puddles that we go to over and over again. So for some people, it could be work. So people work themselves to death. I heard a doctor in Boston. She wrote an article in Boston Globe 2013. She said she's seen this new sickness that she calls it. And all these people that are stressed out, and they got all kinds of weird pains and all kinds of issues. And, and she said, you know what the issue is? Busyness. People are just like working themselves to death Why? Because we're trying to get glory So it could be work Or it could be an ability we have Maybe it's an intellectual ability Or a musical ability Or an athletic ability And we say that's going to give me glory Or maybe it's our, our spouse You know some marriages have a glory problem They have a glory issue It's like you have to give me glory You have to give me the glory that I'm hungry for. For some people, if you're single, the culture around you is telling you that, you know, if you're single, you are consigned to a life of unfulfillment and emptiness and unhappiness for the rest of your life. Good luck. Hope you enjoy it. Or find that special person that can give you glory. Well, you know, that's not a Christian view of singleness and celibacy. We look to these things and it's almost like you picture yourself like like you're bent like this. Away from the cross, you're bent to these things and you're saying, give me glory, give me glory. And you bend down and you just try to suck up some glory out of that little puddle. Enough to just satisfy you. Repentance means you say, Lord, that's a puddle. I've chosen it. I'm trying to get glory out of it. And I'm sorry. And I want to turn away from that. Believe the gospel. We repent and believe the gospel. What does it mean to believe the gospel in this point? It means to turn to Jesus as the ocean of glory. To turn to him in faith. To turn to him as the one who bore the cross for us. Instead of just sort of like bending down, trying to get glory out of these puddles, we turn to Christ and we say, we open ourselves up like this. And maybe, you know, if you need healing prayer today, maybe you just literally need to do this. Look up. Get your head up and look up to Christ, the ocean, the fountain, the source of glory. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Where? At Cabo San Lucas in the Pacific Ocean? Well, yeah, yes, yes. But more than anything, at the cross. See, the problem with human glory is we not only have glory hunger, but we have glory fade. Glory fade. It fades. Everything, humanly speaking, that we if we base our glory on something else besides the source and ocean of glory, it will fade. So you base it on worse work, it's gonna fade. You base it on your intellectual abilities, it's gonna fade. You base it on your beauty or your good looks or your athletic abilities, That's going to fade. I read an interview recently with Madonna a couple weeks ago in the New York Times. She said, basically, everybody thinks I have such a great life. Everybody thinks I've made it. But she said, most of the time, I feel like a gerbil on a wheel. Just got to keep cranking it out. Got to keep working. Now, I use Madonna. I'm not criticizing her. I'm saying that's like all of us. That's the way we live if we don't center our lives in the gospel of Jesus Christ we're like the gerbil on the wheel trying to please people trying to get it done trying to perform trying to be perfect and the gospel says no you can't do that it's a free gift you see eventually all of those things we base our glory on they're going to fade and then we're going to feel insignificant we're going to feel weightless we're going to feel bitter we're going to feel cynical and we're going to grow old and growing old is going to be horrible Because our glory is fading. But the follower of Christ says this. We can say this. We don't always say this. But we can say this. And it's true. We can say, you can take my job away. I still have an ocean of glory in the cross of Christ. You can take my money away. And I still have an ocean of glory. You can take my health away. I still have an ocean of glory. You can take my retirement fund away, I still have an ocean of glory. You can take human praise away from me, and I still have an ocean of glory. You can take, you can serve in little ways that nobody notices, and I know some of you are doing this. You're serving people, you're serving the lost, you're serving the poor, you're serving the marginalized, you're serving your family. You're serving in some really difficult situations and you're being faithful and you don't get a lot of praise for it sometimes. But you can say, I got an ocean of glory. It's found in the cross of Christ. So, glory hungry people like us, don't be too easily pleased, don't settle for puddles. Don't settle for puddles. When Jesus offers you the ocean, take the ocean. Amen.